Hey there, beautiful people. Welcome to Fanti, the podcast for all those complex and complicated conversations about the gray areas in our lives. I have recently broken up with Omarion for obvious reasons. Wow. Okay. Sorry. I that that threw me. Uh, wasn't expecting that one. Um, and I am Travel Anderson. Coming up on the show today, we are getting into a good conversation about gentrification with a couple special guests. But first, we're going to get into our past the popcorn this week, which is all about the Omicron or Micron variant situation. Back in the day, by which I mean back in March, we did a special episode all about Miss Funky Covadina with Nurse Alice Benjamin and Dr. Darian Sutton. So y'all know we are proponents of getting the jab over here in these streets. Well, there is a new variant taking the spotlight from Miss Delta, like Dina Jones and Dreamgirls. They're calling wow. it Omicron, Omicron, Omom, Omicron, all of the words, okay? Um, or as a whole lot of black folks are saying, the Omarion variant, which works just as well. So here to help answer some questions and give us the lowdown and tell us if we need to hoard toilet paper again, we have another smart medical provider, Dr. James Simmons. Welcome to Fanti. Why, thank you. I, first of all, I love that I'm taking over for Dr. Darian and Alice, uh, like Dina. Like, I'm <laughs> I'm the new kid on the block because y'all brought the heavy hitters. Alice and Darian do not play. You don't play either. I try, but I'm just trying to live up to them. They were great, and we know that you do fantastic work, which is why we asked you to be here today. So thank you so much for, for offering us a little bit of your time uh, today. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here. So let's get started. Um, I guess I first want to ask what we we don't still know a lot about Miss Omicron from what I'm reading in the news and the little videos that you do on Instagram. Right. And so talk to us about what we do know right now and how concerned we we should or should not be right about this moment. So this is a really sticky uh, question because, you know, I, as, as you said, you watch some of those videos and I'm sort of on the campaign, kind of like Alice and Darian and a lot of other medical professionals too. I'm in the don't panic zone, right? Like everybody, calm down, pump your brakes, get educated, pay attention to it, but don't panic. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of for multiple reasons. I will say though, at least as of the time of this recording, we are up to I took notes. Uh, 1,653 confirmed cases worldwide in 55 countries and 19 U.S. states, which really means it's in all 393 or however many countries there are now. So this this thing is everywhere. What remains to be seen now is, is this going to take over as the primary variant like Delta did, right? So we Mm -hmm. had Alpha. There was Beta and Gamma in different parts of the world that never really materialized, but Delta... She was like, I'm it. I'm Beyonce. I'm taking over the whole world. Everyone's going to know who I am. And we do, right? That's why we had a summer surge. That's why we had more COVID. That's why there were different you know, mask mandates, all this different kind of stuff. Because we thought we had gotten rid of it with Alpha. Delta popped up. And now we have Omarion. And there's a lot that remains to be seen about Omarion. It's, it's kind of scary how much we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. I, one number one, I feel bad for Omarion, uh, the musician, not the, the COVID, um, but also felt bad for Delta Airlines because 
they will not reference it as Delta ever. They always call it like the technical name, which is always hilarious to me. Uh-huh. Talk to me about vaccination and boosters. And, and I know that like, I know I'm getting the booster shot this week and I'm like, is this going to do anything? Is this going to be worth it? Like, how are you looking at boosters and Om- Omari Cron, o- Omari <laughs> Omarosa? Um, oh, Om- Omarosa. I haven't heard that one yet. That's good. Um, I know I felt bad for Omari on early on too, because those two, we were on it. Those memes were out within the day, right? Day after Thanksgiving. Um, Omicron as it is officially pronounced. So listen, vaccines are a really kind of interesting thing because what we don't now know yet and what is concerning scientists and, and providers like myself is how well are these vaccines gonna protect against Omicron? So right now you're probably hearing a lot of anecdotal reports, right? Oh, it's super, super contagious. And I mean, super contagious. That much we're pretty sure about, but what we don't know yet because it is a lagging indicator is how severe is the illness that goes along with Omicron? So if you get SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, you get a certain variant of it, depending on the variant and your immunization status. So whether you have protection from previous infection or protection from a vaccine or both in a lot of people's cases, how sick are you gonna get? So we know very much, you know, Delta, Alpha, Gamma, Beta, those other variants that we have, the vaccines work really, really well against severe infection. What we just don't know yet is how well are they gonna work against Omicron? There are probably signs that they'll work pretty well, at least against severe infection. How Mm -hmm. well it holds up against people actually getting infected or people getting mild illness, we don't know. There are some signs to indicate that it won't, that the vaccines will not hold up very well against mild illness. But it's, it's really too early to say. That being said, we talk about antibodies a lot with vaccines, but these vaccines trigger your entire immune system response. So it's not just the antibodies that we need to worry about. So getting fully vaccinated and getting boosted will help your entire immune system against any insult by SARS-CoV-2. This variant, a different variant, a previous SARS-CoV-2, whatever. So why we're so pushing the vaccines even harder now is, listen, we don't know how well it's going to protect, but we know in the way that the vaccines are designed, they're at least going to protect you a little bit, which if Omarion gets cray, a little bit is going to be better than none. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do we still yet know, like, when we did that episode with um, Dr. Zarian and Nurse Alice, you know, that was that time period where, you know, the Nignongs, the, the black folks were still, you know, hesitant seemingly about getting, you know, the jab. Um, Wait, have you, you seen? What did you call us, Trevor? Nignogs. <laughs> we're not even going to touch it. We're just going to act like. Oh, we're not. We're leaving that alone. Okay. okay exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm interested in knowing if we've seen an increase in particular, like black folks folks like actually getting vaccinated i know that a lot of like churches have been mobilized throughout this period to try to get folks vaccinated and other like activist works what are you seeing in your work i'm seeing that the things that we should have done as a public health uh and as a healthcare institution early on we're now finally doing so Mm. you know let's let's be honest a lot of this conversations i've had with people from the la department of public health and other healthcare providers epidemiologists scientists whatever, you know, didn't approach kind of like most things, but didn't approach how we communicate about vaccines and their efficacy 
through the trauma-informed lens, through the culturally informed lens of how black folks need to receive this information. So it's, you know, a lot of my doctoral research was in, uh, you know, HIV prep. And one of the things we looked at in my research was black men who have sex with men are as just as into taking PrEP, HIV oral prophylaxis, as anybody else, if it's communicated to them in a way that is culturally appropriate and understood and by people who they know and love and trust and respect. Mm -hmm. So we just, as black folks, I mean, we know this, it's, it's almost a tired trope at this point, but we just don't like inherently trust the healthcare system, right? So you can't put up a big flashy billboard, as much as I love Anthony Fauci, you can't put an old white man on TV and tell a bunch of black folks to take vaccines, it's just not gonna work. So now all of a sudden we're doing the things, vaccine campaigns at local clinics, at churches, at gymnasiums that are now back open in predominantly black and brown communities. We're doing it in culturally appropriate language. We're having, you know, celebrity influencers, you know, musicians, all these different people who are like for the vaccine, talking to the community in a way that the community needs to be talked to. And frankly, I think you merge that along with because listen, most of us were like, I'm gonna wait and see what happens, right? <laughs> well, mm -hmm. at this point, the numbers speak for themselves, right? Billions of doses have been given with this vaccine. Very, 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 very few adverse side effects. We've waiting to see what happens and what happens is people are protected with this vaccine. So I think we're starting to see a lot more black and brown folks in particular get vaccinated. Now, can we speed everybody up and get boosted, right? Like that's that's the next step. I know for myself, um, I'm, I'm thinking about like the booster shot and wanting to protect myself as best I can and all of those things. I'm, I'm curious how you are approaching the holidays differently, if at all, um, thinking about the new variant and, you know, the next one that is sure to come. Um, how are you thinking about the holidays? I love that you said the next one that is sure to come. Because I, I, I feel like, you know, people are like, oh, my God, here we go again with Omarion. If we don't get vaccinated, and in particular by we, I mean the global population, right? I'm stealing your question a little bit here, Jared. But if we don't, yeah. if we don't address the like inherent racial biases of our, you know, global healthcare system, the fact that less than 10% of sub-Saharan Africa even has one dose of the vaccine, that's how these things are going to happen, right? We have to address all of these issues. And I don't, it doesn't have to be Africa. It can be any country as to where we have to vaccinate everyone so that these new variants don't just keep coming. So we don't have to keep having these conversations about what are you doing this holidays in regards to COVID, right? Or we're just gonna keep doing this every year. That being said, if you are lucky enough, like we are, to live in a wealthy country and have be fully vaccinated, even not boosted, but preferably boosted, if you are around other people who are also vaccinated and boosted, I'm telling people enjoy your holidays, have fun, I still like my three V's though. So vaccine, ventilation, and very good masking. Most of us wear these little bullshit ass masks that don't really work. Wear a good mask, wear it the right way when you are traveling. But then if you were get, you know, you get to mom and him's house or whatever and everybody's vaccinated, like take your masks off, enjoy the holidays like you normally would if you're around vaccinated people. So that's what I'm doing. I'm actually, I'm home right now cold ass Nebraska, but everyone here is vaccinated. Everybody's good. You know, we're, we're sort of acting as if it's normal in our household. I think if you don't have any sort of like immunocompromised situation going on, where you're not on chemo, anything like that, and you're fully vaccinated and boosted, you can enjoy your holidays. 
All righty then. Dr. Simmons, thank you so much for all of the perspective that you've offered us. Um, I'm sure we will be talking about this more and more in the coming weeks and months. And like I said, the next one that is sure to come because I, I saw the headline this past week that the United States is sending 9 million doses of the vaccine to you know African nations, which is great. But Africa's populated by 1.3 billion people. So there is that part. I mean, I think it's really important also to notice that, you know, we're at the more we learn about this thing, the more we realize, you know, this probably was actually circulating in the Netherlands before it was ever even circulating in South Africa. I just actually want to take this opportunity to, you know, it's the scientists in Botswana who are really the ones that are really helping us to get ahead of this thing the way we are. And the scientists in South Africa in particular, who have been much more transparent than scientists in other places and other countries. Um, so I just literally mm-hmm. mad props to them. And I know Africa is really taking a hit right now in terms of everybody talking about why these variants always come out of Africa. Flip your thinking. It's actually the other way around. The reason we know about these things and we can be prepared for them is because the scientists in sub- parts of Southern Africa are leading the world in this. So just shout, shout out to them. Period. There's a whole other piece about colonization happening there Hello. that we don't have time to get into, but tell people where they can find you on social media <laughs> oh. uh, and, and check out your video updates. We're going to talk about colonization this week coming up, Haney, uh, <laughs> at Ask the NP, mostly on it. I'm most active on Instagram. I kind of lurk on Twitter and other places, but I'm most active on Instagram or askthenp.com. Thank you so much, James. Really, really appreciate you. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're getting into the good, the bad, and the Chipotle of gentrification. Fanti's coming right back. Don't go anywhere. It is time to seek out pleasure in every area in your life, from how you start your mornings to how you wind down at night and everything in between. You deserve to enjoy it all. Dipsy Stories wants you to find joy and confidence in and out of the bedroom. We've been telling y'all about Dipsy Stories for a minute, okay? They are an OG sponsor, okay, of Fanta, all right? And you need to go on over to that app, okay? It's an app of sexy audio stories. And now they even have brand new written stories if you like to read your 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 stuff. We just gonna call it stuff because you know it can get a little little kinky over there at Dipsy Stories. <laughs> I love I, I love you talking about Dipsy. It's always funny. Um, the current <laughs> email that just came from our folks over at Dipsy Stories, the, the subject line is we've all got that one coworker. And then you open it up, it says a different kind of performance review. Sure. Maybe it's best to keep your office crush just that, a crush. But if you've ever gotten the urge to scratch that itch, this week's stories are for you. (laughs) Um, For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash fanti. That's 30 days of full access for free. That's D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash fanti. That's dipsystories.com slash fanti. Go check it out and um, get it in with with your coworker there, but at home. Because you don't want to get in trouble. Like in your mind, in your imagination, okay? In, in your head, in your head. <laughs> Welcome back to Fantai. In 2017, journalist Thomas Campanella wrote in Bloomberg about his observation of a steadily gentrifying Brooklyn. He said, the indicator species of gentrification are many. Pop-up farmer's markets, a front yard with a little free library, $1,000 baby strollers, among the most telling, certainly the most visible, to a flaneur, I think that's the, the French word there, at twilight, are 
Edison-style incandescent light bulbs. Reproduction retro lighting is essential for any restaurateur or publican seeking an upscale clientele. Glowing tungsten, I hate the word tungsten, filaments seem to be uh, drawing graduate-degreed urbanites like moths to the proverbial flame. Sometime, maybe last year, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and he referenced me as a black gentrifier. I immediately felt a way about it, but sat with it for a moment and then sat up straight and asked myself, am I a gentrifier? Can black folks be gentrifiers? As I sat there staring at the Edison bulbs on my dining room chandelier. (laughs) Gentrification is something I think about a lot as I live in what I call the Brooklyn of Los Angeles, Englewood. I'd been here for less than a year when I saw Chipotle coming soon on the side of a building and I realized... It was happening. Since we've gotten a new stadium, won the 2028 Olympics, and are preparing to host a Super Bowl, I think about gentrification a lot. And it's not all bad, but I'm definitely fanti. I wanted to talk to some people that have informed opinions on this very topic. Robert Myrick is an Atlanta-based commercial real estate developer and broker. And Donovan Ramsey is a banji motherfucker i know from way back over town and also happens to be the black la reporter for the los angeles times robert and donovan welcome to fanti well i don't know if i should leave you can tell who's donovan and robert welcome you too as well oh, thank you okay so the first question i would love to get feedback from all of y'all on is Can black people be gentrifiers? Robert, I'll Mm. let you go first. In theory, yes. But I would kind of like to say no. I think ultimately when it comes to gentrification, it's really about the respect that you have for the community that you're moving into. Um, And oftentimes, most black folks want to see their younger, more educated black folks go and get resources and bring them back to the community. So Mm. I actually say no. I, I kind of think about it in the similar way of like the way we ask can black people be racist and we've agreed on the show that black people cannot be racist. Donovan, do you think black people can be gentrifiers? I think that you are a gentrifier. Yeah. <laughs> See, Donovan, this is why we don't have, this is why it's taken so long to not have you on this show. God damn it. I know. And I am about to just act a fool. I mean, I would say like, so by definition, right? Like the gentry, meaning well-off people moving in and having an effect on a place, then yes, by definition, but not really in in practice the way that America is set up. In America, white folks have the power, you know, because of economic resources, because of like political connections to go into neighborhoods and displace people. There are probably a few people that can do that, like individually, black black folks that can do it. But on a mass scale, are there black development companies that can make a plan to go into Inglewood and to say, we're going to have a stadium, we're going to build these new grocery stores, and it'll be a, a, a systematic thing that we do that will take one group of people out of this place and put in another? No. I mean, we we haven't done it. Maybe someday we will do it, but not as it is. Travel? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I feel like we have two very smart answers that have been given to us. (laughs) Um, A way to avoid 
answering <laughs> questions. Nice, Jabelle, nice. Well, no, because I think I think the the kind of delineation that both of them have made from like the the denotation, right, of the word gentrifier and what it means, then like, yeah, but like to to Robert's point. I find more often than not that, you know, those of us who are, you know, quote unquote, upwardly mobile, quote unquote, educated, quote unquote, got a couple of dollars in our pockets. We don't treat our black neighborhoods, brown neighborhoods, et cetera, in the same ways that, for example, white people treat these neighborhoods when they come into them. Right. Mm-hmm. We we have figured out or can recognize ways in which like a community's culture or a community's energy is necessary and should be maintained. Whereas what we often see is a lot of, you know, usually white folks come into communities and want to change the community, right? They don't want the hole in the wall fish shack on the corner anymore, right? They don't want the mom and pop liquor store there anymore, right? They want their nice restaurant with white linen tables that they can walk to from their home, Right. And so I just think I just think we as black folks specifically, and I think this also extends to other communities of color, our the way our respect is set up for a culture and a community that we come into is just different. Yeah. So I want to give like the formal definition coming from Oxford, which also feels a little weird in this conversation. Fuck Oxford. Um, <laughs> we'll take that. Uh, we will we will put that caveat here. The definition of gentrify is to change the character of a, and there's a parenthetical here, it says a poor urban area, through wealthier people moving in, improving housing, and attracting new business, typically displacing current inhabitants in the process. And I feel like from that lens, like, sure, we can be gentrifiers, right, as Black folks. But I, I always think about this because, like, I I know that the apartment that I live in, the condo that I live in, like my friend that bought it and now I rent it from him, he came in and like redid the place, right? And like raised the property value of this of this specific condo. Now, mind you, I think this was like a drug house before I lived here, to just be quite honest. So really, like Jerry? who knows what was going on. I think it really? was, let's just be honest. <laughs> Um, but like it's a it's it maybe a still is who who knows I mean hey. listen okay there's an edi- there's always an edible in this house let's just call it what it is <laughs> but I think about that and I think to myself like am I gentrifying my building am I gentrifying my neighborhood like and also like I I was reading Hari Ziad who I believe uh, many of us know in this room has a piece in the root that first of all the headline is a read on all of us because the headline is debating whether black people can be gentrifiers misses the point. <laughs> rude but um one of the folks uh, in the reporting that hari speaks to says i think it's simple if you can afford to live in a new quote luxury apartment buildings going up all through the hood you are financially able to support gentrification kareem the person who's speaking here goes on to say that goes for black people who are moving into gentrified neighborhoods and those who grew up here but have the money to stay however i think it's still more beneficial for the communities of color to live among other people of color with success instead of people who look nothing like us. Which I thought, that actually seems to resonate for me. Like, I think that Black people probably can be gentrifiers. I see your your wheels turning, Travel. After you just read all of that, 
the question becomes, is gentrification bad? Well, yes. Go go well. for it, Donovan. <laughs> well, no, I mean, so like I've I've done some thinking recently, right? Like I'm like new to LA. I moved here in February. I'm in a what is what is a historically black neighborhood, but is now a majority Latino neighborhood with still like a significant black population. Um, I'm coming in renting my home from a white woman in this neighborhood. I've seen here in other places that I've lived these really destructive cycles that have to do with displacement. And I think that, you know, when we talk about gentrification, we have to be specific about the action that's that's on sort of the consequences of it. It's not just new restaurants. It's mm-hmm. not just more diversity that the real consequence of it is displacement. So whenever you have a person that is no longer able to stay in a place that they call home for for financial reasons, that's a bad thing, Mm -hmm. even if other things come along with it. And then sort of the kind of long-term consequences that you see, the long-term consequences that you see are people's senses of home be erased. So not only have you taken me from the place that I grew up and loved and lived, but now I can't go back to anywhere. Because everyone that I know is no longer there because of the mm. institutions and the cornerstones of my of my life story are now gone. I think that is a type of violence that we don't always call violence because it mm. only happens to certain kinds of people. That there are certain places that won't be gentrified. You're not going up to Brentwood just because you got Period. money and think that you're going to get rid of some historical home or that you'll get rid of a bar or a restaurant that's an institution you know what i mean that there are Mm -hmm. certain things that just there are certain places that we value enough right that there's are are certain sense of 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 neighborhoods that that we value the character enough that we would set up legislation so that they can't change but black and brown neighborhoods are always up for grabs because black and brown people are always up to be pushed around and i'm gonna stop right there before i get that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now, well, Robert, I want to come to you, in, Robert. I want to come to you in just a moment. But Donovan, I want to follow up with you here because you uh, you actually gave a lot of what I was going to ask in my context here for your question. But like you've lived in Atlanta, New York City, uh, now Los Angeles. You're originally from Ohio, and I'll give your social security number in just a moment. But I wanted to, I wanted to. But I wanted to ask, how do you view, if you view? Uh, gentrification differently in Los Angeles than you might have in uh, the other places that you've lived? It's like war out here. That LA, in my opinion, you see the most ferocious fight over land and property and housing. I mean, you know, like I, I lived in Brooklyn for, you know, a couple of years. I lived in Harlem for a long while. And Los Angeles, just because of the influx of, the pe- of, of people constantly, the price of housing here, what people actually get for the housing. And I think also, too, because, you know, L.A. is a newer city. Like, New York is an old American city. L.A., comparatively, you know, is kind of like a young city. So people are still kind of finding their place in Los Angeles. So there are these constant, this sort of turning of communities. And really what you see is this constant pushing of black and brown people further down south through, you know, along Central Avenue, until they're completely out of the area and, you know, end up in Las Vegas or, you know, Austin and Dallas and, um, 
Yeah, L.A. wants to be a white city in ways that I think other cities don't see themselves as a white city. L.A. sees itself as a wow. white city. Oh, baby, that's a hot take right there, honey. I mean, come on now. Robert, I, I mean, want to come to you as a as a broker, as a real estate developer. Like when we're when we're talking about what um, Donovan has raised about just like the historical displacement of black and brown folks um, for, you know, these new restaurants, these new places. I'm wondering in the work that you're doing in the Atlanta area, I also should give a disclaimer that. Rob is one of my closest friends, so you know this might get a little spicy. Love um, you, girl. love you. <laughs> but I'm I'm wondering when you're when you're looking at projects that you're taking on and developments that you're supporting with, are you your colleagues, other folks who are in this work, thinking about who no longer will be able to be in that community because of what you're bringing to it? I want him to be like, not really. <laughs> I can't speak for everyone, but uh, right. it's definitely something that is central um, in my thought process with all the work that I do, whether it's uh, you know looking at uh, potential residential or commercial projects. I'm looking at how can we build uh, quality yet affordable spaces for folks that are from this community and for folks that are going to you know, provide resources for this community. And to be honest, it's not always possible. It's definitely uh, uh, a game that's heavily incentivized, you know, um, with public dollars and sometimes from philanthropy. But mm-hmm. we shouldn't necessarily have to rely on at least philanthropic donations for to make uh, affordable housing and affordable uh, commercial spaces actually work. Um, it mm-hmm. definitely needs to be, you know, more on cities to actually uh, implement uh, policies and put dollars, you know, behind these initiatives to actually get stuff done. In terms of development. While it is central to what I think about, and I'm always trying to figure out how to put uh, levels of affordability into projects that I'm working on, I hate the fact that I have to, to keep it real. Again, I want to build quality stuff. Quality stuff costs. Construction costs are high. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We're in the middle of a pandemic and labor shortages, amongst other things, are, you know, making real estate, new real estate projects become unaffordable. But nonetheless... For me personally, it's central to my work to make sure that there are people like me who are able to stay in the communities that I work in. Therefore, I'm going to do what I have to do. And what? I'm sorry. I'm going to do what I have to do to make sure (laughs) that people like us stay in our communities. But I just hate the fact that the onus is always placed on black people. Point. And it shouldn't have to be. That's real. That's real. I want to address a bit of privilege here, right? We are all black, college-educated, upwardly mobile queer folks that are living in big cities. And it is interesting to me to have this conversation amongst this group of people because I feel like we are all people who would probably be considered Black gentrifiers depending on like the neighborhoods that we move into. Um, I This would not be fanti if we did not talk about the things that we like about gentrification, right? Like, but there's there's always been this thing for me when I've been thinking about gentrification, like how could we get all of the benefits of the gentrification without having like the cost of gentrification, the benefits being, you know, here in Los Angeles and specifically in Inglewood, I remember going to a Starbucks and being really mad that the internet was so slow and being like, "Uh uh-uh, why is the, why is the Inglewood Starbucks so damn slow? And I asked the manager and she, the white woman who came out and she was like, 
just so you understand, it's not that we are like running slower internet here. She was like, the infrastructure here in Inglewood is not does not mm. support high speed internet in the same way that the one down the street that is technically in Los Angeles does, right? And so I was mm. like, mm-hmm. And like, but now we also have more food delivery options, right? Like two of my favorite restaurants when I first moved here both closed within a month of each other. But like neither one of them was on delivery apps. None of them had really modernized themselves. And it was hard to see them go because like they were such staples in this neighborhood. But now like I do have a lot more places to choose from to eat and things like that. And like it's frustrating in those ways. I went to New York for three weeks a couple of years ago and I came back and all of La Brea had been repaved. And I was like, well, I'm not mad at that. What are the things that y'all have found yourselves appreciating about gentrification in the places that you live when when you've lived there? As you mentioned, resources. I've lived in poor communities and I've lived in not so poor communities. And it's great having a grocery store and walking distance. Um, and unfortunately, you know, a, a number of the neighborhoods, poor neighborhoods in Atlanta don't have that. It's nice that if there is a public disturbance, um, if we need uh, the police to come, they will, you know, in certain communities more than others. Now, of course, I'm not advocating for a police state. but Right. Fuck them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you need your shit protected. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, I'll say this. It, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it's not all bad from a resource standpoint. As we already talked about, it's just making sure that the people who are in those communities have the voice in changing those communities if they want, if they want to. Donovan? You know... I had to think hard about this. And the one thing that I wants to be like, I don't like none of this shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, really what it is, is that for for um, older people of color, especially who have held on in their neighborhoods and held on to their properties. Mm -hmm. um, One, that is that that the changes in these neighborhoods that bring more value really are a windfall for them. So there's a woman on, on my street name uh miss faye shout out miss faye who's an older black woman with like a blonde shortcut who <laughs> who owns the property next to mine and she owns two others on this street yeah and she has seen the value of her properties i mean just multiply just over the past 10 years mm-hmm. and and she held out and and she's going to continue to hold out she was telling me um because i was trying to buy one of her houses low you know quiet quiet as it's kept but uh, Miss Faye said no. Like you know, I toughed it out during some of the worst years in this neighborhood, and I want to see, you know, how much value I can create and like hand down to my grandkids. That's dope to me. Like for me, like 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 I love seeing black people get equity. You know what I mean? Like that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Also, like I like um, scaring white people. <laughs> so <laughs> wow, you wow. know, I don't have to leave my neighborhood to do it. I. Hey, I'm just I'm kidding you all. So, I'm just kidding. He's he's actually oh. not kidding. That's why it's funny. <laughs> um, Travel. Oh, go ahead, Robert. Oh yeah, I just wanted to add on uh, to Donovan's point. Wealth generation is a thing. Uh, most folks mm-hmm. in this country build their wealth off of their housing, off their houses, and so ultimately having um, avenues for Black people who can stay in these neighborhoods to generate wealth, build generational wealth, and provide for their families. I'm all, I'm all for it. Get every dollar you can. 
Travel, what are you enjoying about the gentrification? Because you live in Hollywood, so like Hollywood's changed a lot in the 10 years that I've been here. It has. Here's the thing. I think that when we are talking about gentrification, and this probably goes a little bit to what Donovan mentioned earlier, it, it troubles me, even in this conversation and with the premise of this show, to talk about what I like about gentrification Right. Mm-hmm. Because of the connection to the the necessary connection it has to displacement, as Donovan mentioned. And it gets me thinking about I'm not answering your question, FYI. Is there a need for <laughs> is there a need for us to, like, think differently about, you know, when we're talking about gentrification? Like, why why do we see a nice grocery store or more, you know, food places on the delivery apps or whatever as a positive sign of gentrification when you should be able to get these stores whether or not white people are in your community or whether or not you have upwardly mobile black folks in your community. And also I say all of this as someone who is not interested in returning to my home of Charleston, South Carolina. Mm. I ain't never going back, okay? <laughs> and I also plan to get some more coins, okay? So does that always mean I would be a, a gentrifier? Maybe, maybe. Well, now we get into something, you know, because there are a few truths here that that thing sometimes go unmentioned, which is that for most of American history, white people have not wanted to live near black people, mm-hmm. which is why we're, why we're talking about gentrification and not diversity of neighborhoods because whenever the white Mm. folks come usually it's only a matter of time before everybody else got to go that you know it has to do and i'm not sort of just like i mean check the check the historical record but also you can look at um research about uh the perception of crime in a neighborhood and the ways that white people will perceive crime based on the number of uh residents of color the neighborhood Mm -hmm. has that also property values, right? Like we're we're seeing in the news over the past week or so, this story about a couple in the Bay Area who had their mm-hmm. home appraised and it was appraised for uh, about half a million dollars more once they received, I mean, once they removed all the pictures of themselves and any um, ethnic and African art from the home and had a friend kind of stand in as the homeowner. So, so, so the value that we see Coming with gentrification is not just because white people are better at planning and maintaining their neighborhoods or advocating for their needs, but because dollars follow white people because of their perceived value as people. Oh, this house is worth more because it's owned by a white person. You all deserve paved streets because you're white people. So, you know, um, white people... Sometimes even if they don't have personal prejudices or stereotypes or whatever, even if they're not racist, will sometimes want to live in a in a majority white neighborhood because they think that that protects their home value because they Mm -hmm. think that that, you know, will give them better schools. Um, That shit is still racist, too, because (laughs) because you're playing into like a larger like racist system. But I but I say all that to say that, you know, the whole thing is complicated. And then, you know, as upwardly mobile black folks. All of us are only but a few generations out of slavery anyway. Mm-hmm. First, let me say that. But then, you know, there are some of us who, who don't want to live with in the same neighborhood as our cousins. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, or by by virtue of things that might make us different, like, you know, the kind of car that we drive or if we have um, 
uh, visible difference as it relates to gender expression and sexuality. Mm-hmm. You know, don't want to be in a certain kind of neighborhood because you won't have certain protections. It's also messy and complicated. It's so fucking messy and complicated. Go ahead, Robert. I put all the onus on cities, the government, period. With most of these cities, you have to give a fuck. Just to keep it perfectly real. Mm -hmm. If you want to see black folks, people of color, poor folks stay in your communities, you have to stop looking at affordable housing from a lens of profitability. You have to look at it as a public good. Ultimately, we're talking about quality of life issues and we're really talking about income inequality, but they don't want to talk about that. This income inequality touches housing. It touches transportation, touches uh, education. It touches uh, crime. And so ultimately, if the city who takes all of our tax dollars, no matter if you're uh, red, white, yellow, black, green, whatever, they need to be putting these dollars back in these communities and not giving a fuck about what the cost is. Because ultimately, for them to have a, a thriving city, they need to actually make these resources available. Mm-hmm. I have a question for y'all. You know, three of us on this conversation went to Morehouse. Jared went to Clark Atlanta University. And there is... I started getting nervous because I felt like some bullshit was coming, but it's no, no. fine. I decided to hold it in. I decided to hold it in this time. I saw it happen on your face and I appreciate <laughs> it. Carry on. But AUC love. AUC love. There is, yes. But there is a recurring energy at a lot of HBCUs, right? Of this, you know, talented 10th mentality of this, you go to school, cause you go to these schools in particular because like we're the best a community has to offer. And, and it often seems like, you know, the expectation is that we will go get our degrees, get our resources, et cetera, and come back. But many of us never come back. And like I said, Look I ain't you. going back. I ain't going back. And so everybody going to have to get comfortable with that. Um, but <laughs> it does make me think about the ways in which, like, we might be also, like, contributing to the issues that our home communities might be experiencing um, because we didn't go back. That obviously mm. puts the pressure and the the responsibility and the onus on us as individuals and not on the systems like uh, Robert was saying. But I'm just Glad wondering if y'all shut up. I just wonder if y'all <laughs> think about that, like if that factors into your head about the ways in which you may not have lived up to the mm. expectation of returning, quote unquote, home to help elevate your community so that the folks who are ensuring that, you know, the streets are paved look like us, right? And, and how that might, yeah. you know, change things. So I'll, I'll jump in here first. I, I think about this a lot. I was, uh, um, my family now lives in Seattle, half of my family now lives in Seattle, but I, I grew up in the Bay Area in Fairfield. There was a point where I thought about like how I was frustrated with seeing certain, certain things happening in in my home city. And I was thinking about like, maybe I should go back and like run for mayor or something and like do all these great things. And then I thought to myself, like, I don't know how much better, how much people would be in love with the idea of, oh, you went away to Atlanta and LA and now you're coming back to make us like them. 
I don't know if people want that. I mean, I guess if they would have elected me, maybe they did. But like, it was something that I was thinking about. Like, Travel, uh, you and I have been talking about this this show, um, the the Great Soul Food Cook Off, and we'll we'll mention that a little bit later on in the in the show. But I cannot help but think how many times we hear the word elevate on a show like that. We always hear that about mm. ethnic foods, right? When it's black food, when it's Indian food, when it's, you know, whatever kind of ethnic food, there's always like this idea of elevating it as if it is beneath something else, right? Mm-hmm. But we never hear that about French cuisine. It's always about elevation and making it better. And I'm like, am I going back home to Fairfield to elevate it? There's like some 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 challenge with that kind of language. Yes, well, anti-blackness. I mean, I even, anti-blackness. That's part of it. But like, I don't, I didn't live in a place that was like predominantly black, right? I was saying to my brother, like when our parents moved from the East Bay to the North Bay, they were like the uppity parents for having left and went to Fairfield, right? And mm-hmm. Vallejo and all that kind of stuff. But then eventually like more and more of our family started moving that direction. And so I don't know that going back is necessarily what people need or want. Donovan? Well, first I want to say that you can go back and not be mayor. Mm. No, that's, that's what... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, that was that was the the perfect response. I mean, <laughs> you know, so what's funny is that first I think that like, you know, we have to think about what we consider to be home. Home for me was never Columbus, Ohio. Like mm-hmm. I got out of Columbus as fast as I could. And whenever I hear that people are moving to Columbus or have returned to Columbus, I think like for the fuck what? Because I just don't have that relationship with that place. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, and like, and bless it, you know? But I, but what I will say, funny enough, that, that, you know, you mentioned our experience in the Atlanta University Center. I had a nightmare about two weeks ago that I was in Morehouse's campus. In the nightmare, I was on the campus. There was all of this construction happening. And I was trying to get back to my freshman dorm, which was in Mays Hall, another story. And there was all of this construction that I couldn't get past. There were like mounds of like dirt and rocks and bricks and things. And I couldn't get back to this room and it was really upsetting to me. And now that we're having this conversation, I actually realized that like Morehouse is probably for better or for worse, the one place that I consider to be like a home for me in this country that like Mm. if Morehouse didn't exist, it would take something from me. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you can tear down a lot of the other institutions that I've passed through, but Morehouse is one that, like, I want to see continue forever, you know, if it can. So to get back to Travel's question, I wish that I was more mature when I was on campus and when I was making a decision about what to do after I left campus to maintain some connection to the area around Morehouse, the West End, because uh, that is an area that many of us, you know, it is a... a uh, predominantly black, low-income neighborhood, has been for a very long time. The homes in the West End had always been beautiful homes, skeleton-wise, right? These old bungalows that people now are snapping up for $300,000, $400,000. They were maybe twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 when we were on campus. I wish that, that I had made an investment in that neighborhood then. But that said, I don't know if we should be looking at 18 to 22 year olds 
to be the ones that come in and save these communities because because we're just not prepared. We don't mm. even know what we want to do and where we want to live yet. I wish that I was more connected to that place that I call home, that I had um, a real investment. When I think of home, I think of a place. Oh, Lord. Where love <laughs> is overflowing. Well, I just love. had to do it. <laughs> I just had to do it. I'm sorry, but Robert, go uh. for it. <laughs> Gender neutral, right? Gender neutral. Yes, of course. On this show, at least. <laughs> um, I can't expect everybody to be Harriet Tubman. I can't mm-hmm. expect everybody to be Martin Luther King and have to go back to their communities. There are reasons why we, we fought for the end of segregation so that you know we'd have uh, the ability to have access to other communities, to their wealth, education, so on and so forth. And so I do not want to put the onus, as Chevelle mentioned, on individual Black people to have to stay in the quote-unquote hood for their communities to progress. Ultimately, our communities are with us. And so wherever I go, I'm taking uh, Southeast D.C. and PG County. I live in both. (laughs) I take those communities where I go. Yes. Um, I've lived in Southwest Atlanta for most of my time in Georgia. I take that community wherever I go. Um, And so ultimately, no matter where I live, uh, I I personally am going to be doing what I can do to make sure that I provide opportunities for other black folks, whether they're in gentrifying communities or not. You know, Myrick, Uh-oh. I also know Myrick, so I'm about to challenge him a little bit on this. Uh-oh. I appreciate it. Come on. Let's bring it. <laughs> I feel you in that sense that like we like bring where we come from with us. But the thing that kind of like grinds my gears is this idea that like that like we're losing the value. That the neighborhoods often that we mm. move into, these non-black neighborhoods, we are buying in at a premium. Because the housing prices have all have like already shot up to become this like desirable place that we can live. They have all the services and the resources. And then what white folks do in large part historically is once enough of us get there, they say, there goes the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Let me start looking where we should go. And they buy into our former neighborhoods mm. on sale. Right. Like get it when it's worth almost nothing that they, you know, strategize with developers. I don't know why I sound like, you know, conspiracy brothers saying this, but this is like, I mean, honestly, what happens, right? That like, you know, in this country, white folks have money, white folks control city governments in many cities and also business and development in many cities. So uh, let me just say like this. People who happen to be white are controlling the plans for our cities. And oftentimes, you know, even though we bring the hood with us, we're not bringing the value of the hood with us, right? That we're just shedding wealth. We're just shedding dollars as we get pushed around where, you know, instead of, you know, buying into neighborhoods low and watching that value just increase, which is, you know, how I think this cycle continues. You said a lot of good shit. Yes. <laughs> let's, let's say that. Um, all I was going to say is this. I personally put uh, the onus on all this, again, on the government personally. Um, you can have, you know, developers that want to do well. You could have individuals that want to go back to the communities and help everybody out. Um, but ultimately, if folks who are in power aren't the ones that are, are making the change, and if we as a collective community, global community, not, not just black people, because, again, power, unless uh, cities are forced to make changes, things aren't going to happen. I look at, uh, again, I came from black-ass D.C. to black-ass Atlanta. Both cities have black leadership, and we're still talking about gentrification amongst other issues in both of those cities. 
Mind you, these are cities that are built on the backs of black people. Black culture, every person who's moving to Atlanta now is moving here because of some black cultural influence that happened over the past 20 to 30 years. Whether it's from hip hop <laughs> to reality television, we built this city. Microsoft, Google, Facebook, Airbnb, all the large tech companies that are moving here now, they're moving here because of diversity. They're moving here because there are enough niggas here <laughs> to make it make sense for them to come. They're moving here for the Atlanta University Center amongst and cheap housing among other things. Um, and so I said for the say, studio system and the production companies and all that stuff as well. Exactly. And so all I say is, hey, city, protect the people yeah. who bought you all this capital. Protect the people that have made Atlanta what it is. Too often we rely on businesses when we shouldn't. Businesses are about making profit. Uh, yeah. Again, we rely on people. But again, there's only so much that Robert and Donovan and Jared and Travell can do. Really, until we address income inequality, none of this is going to change. Yeah. But hey, it's not my job to figure out the solution. But I'm going to do what I can to help support all you niggas as y'all do it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank all of uh, our guests for joining us today. Robert, tell people where they can find more about uh, the work that you're doing. No, I appreciate it. Uh, my company is Storied Partners. That's S-T-O-R-I-E-D, partners.com. So if you are a rich motherfucker <laughs> that wants to invest in real estate development that helps the hood, definitely reach out to us. Uh, we'd love to talk and see how we can actually bring change to our communities. Okay. And then Donovan, uh, we're going to have you back on next year sometime because you have a book coming out. Tell people about the book that you have coming and where they can follow your work at the LA Times. Yes. Yeah, so my book, it's my first book. It's tentatively titled When Crack Was King. It's a people's history of the crack epidemic, uh, the 80s and 90s. Um, I'm also a reporter. I cover Black Los Angeles for the LA Times, so you can read my writing. Um, Come on, front page. LA Times. Yeah. <laughs> we love to see it. <laughs> and, and, I'm, and I'm on all socials at Donovan X Ramsey. That's D-O-N-O-V-A-N. X like Xerox. X like Xanadu. We thank you all for being here. I love this conversation, and I'm really intrigued to see uh, what kind of feedback we're going to get. We want to hear from y'all that are listening. Hit us up on social media using the hashtag FantiFam. We're on Twitter and Instagram at FantiPodcast. Coming up, why y'all hate us so much in listener feedback and our dishonorable mentions. Fanti's coming back in just a moment. Well, Manolo, we have a show to promote. It's called Back to Game Show. It's a family-friendly podcast where listeners submit games and we play them with callers from around the world. Oh, sounds good. New episodes uh, happen every other Wednesday on MaximumFun.org. It's a, it's a fast and loose oasis of absurd innocence and naivete. And Are you writing a poem? No, and just saying things from my memory. And uh, it's a nice break from reality. <laughs> Is that, are we allowed to say that? I don't know. It sounds bad. It comes with a 100% happiness guarantee. It does not. <laughs> Come for the games and stay for the chaos. Hi, I'm Biz. And I'm Teresa. And we're the hosts of One Bad Mother, a podcast about parenting. Parenting is hard, and we have no advice. But we do see you doing it. Honk if you like to do it. <laughs> Didn't we have a bumper sticker a while back that was like, yeah. honk if you did it? That's what it I was. I think it was honk if you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> what?
we not ever make this? Those we are did delight. make them. I did think they're make? still in the Max Fun store. <laughs> honk, honk. You're doing it. <laughs> Thanks, Biz. So are you. Each week, we'll be here to remind you that you're doing a good job. You can find us on MaximumFun.org. Honk, honk. Toot, toot. Welcome back, beautiful people. We're going to get into our listener feedback segment. This is your opportunity to tell us all of the thoughts that you have about what we do on this show. This week, I'm going to read out an email here from Kelsey, who says a lot of fabulous things about us, because obviously, they say, hi, Travel and Jarrett. I'll put this out there right up front. Oh, by the way, they're responding to our Respect the Elders conversation. Kelsey says Mm -hmm. that they are of the opinion that parents don't inherently deserve respect just for being parents growing up. My dad fed me the line, I brought you in this world, so you should respect me. Oh, that's interesting. You must be white, Kelsey, because the line in my household was, I brought you in this world and I can take you out. And I'll take you out. Okay. Which, truthfully, Kelsey says, I didn't ask for and contributed to my tendency towards suicidal ideation. Anyway, nowadays, I work as a nanny for my cousin's three kids, ages 15, 8, and 5. To put it briefly, there is a philosophy in the household that adults deserve respect, even when they aren't exactly modeling it. For example, this week, the mom told her 15-year-old son that she hopes he gets bullied at school for having food stains on his clothes, which... Oh, my God. Wow. Now, I'm not exactly in love with the children using their clothes as a napkin, but that comment clearly hit the wrong way for this kid aside from that parenting in this household often involves reprimanding screaming and threats particularly for the oldest which in my opinion doesn't set a great example for how to show respect which gets to my point kids learn how to show respect or not from the way their their adults behave what else do they know all that said i am definitely not perfect when it comes to helping to raise these kids they get on my nerves and i'm sometimes even triggered by situations thanks to my own parents strategies which included spankings yellings dismissing children's opinions and feelings and more i do my best and try to reflect and do better when things go wrong overall despite my flaws i try to lead by example not just for the kids but for their parents i try to listen to what they have to say even if i disagree i try to talk to them how i would like them to talk to me and others even though i respond with anger far more often than i'd like i'm working on it i never intended to be a parent but here i am doing my best as a part-time parent to three i think y'all touched on the idea of giving respect to get respect but more specifically what are y'all's thoughts on leading by example for kids go for it jared um so as an uncle now um i mean i have nieces and nephews but like most of them live in other cities so that the practical application is a little bit different um i have like a three-year-old nephew here in la and it's been interesting because i am best friends with uh his parents and so it has been interesting to me to like watch these modern black parents right that are in my life but i'm also seeing them on instagram tuesday i shared this um this post from this black family that i love watching where they are always kind of talking about you know, kids' feelings and how, and they often reference kids having big feelings in moments where they're, you know, outwardly expressive about being angry or sad or whatever it is. Um, and I was like, wow, that is a really respectful way of raising your child, right? Appreciating where they are, what they're feeling, where they're coming from and whatnot. And so watching uh, my nephew and, and friends uh, raise their child, I'm like, it's interesting to watch them and like see the questions that they ask, the way that they engage um, him and the the ways that they are strategizing child rearing differently than their parents did or what they've taken from that. 
I will say that I think that if we want kids to grow up with respect, we have to treat them that way as kids, right? Like if we want them to grow up and be respectful people, we have to be respectful to them um, and model that respect for them. I think it's really difficult when it's not your kid, right? When you are a parent that is like in someone else's household. But I think that doing as much modeling as you can for the kids and for the parents is always going to be better than not, right? So if you're going to be in the household, you said you're a nanny for three kids in, in a wide range of ages. I think that if you're going to be doing that, I think that the modeling that you're doing is probably going to be the best that you can do because you can't tell parents how to raise their kids. Um, that never tends to go well. Um, but I think that continuing to model respectful behavior and letting the kids see that and let them respond to that, I think is the best thing that you can possibly do. Yeah. That's all I got. Wow. Because um, here's the thing. I am not a parent. I have no desire or intention to ever become a parent. I am not a, an uncle, auntie, any, I don't even know what the gender neutral version of that is, but I'm not that. And probably won't be for some time cross my fingers and so uh, I love the idea of which you're putting forward in terms of like trying to model you know what we believe respect should be for kids but like you know I, I don't have a dog in this fight because I'm also not disciplining other people's kids either and by discipline I don't mm. necessarily mean physical discipline or you know those kind of Things that we automatically go to when we're talking about discipline. Like, I'm not, I'm not parenting. I'm not pa fake parenting. I'm not unto-parenting. I'm not doing none of that. I don't, I'm not taking care of your kids. I'm not babysitting. I'm not doing none of that. So, I just, you know, would like to mind my business over here with no kids. Please and thank you. Okay. Well, <laughs> okay. All right, thank you so much for your letter, Kelsey. Now it's time for our dishonorable mentions. These are the stories of people that caught our attention this week that deserve a call out, either for their good or for their stupid. And I'm going um, to interrupt you and start. First, I'm going, I'm to, going start. to go first <laughs> and say that I've discovered a show oh. on my own. <laughs> um, Travel texted me over the weekend and was like, bitch, uh, actually, you sent me a voice note. So Jarrett from the past is going to insert I'm going to send it to the producers. Y'all can put it in right here. I need for you to get access to a Discovery Plus subscription. And you need to watch the Great Soul Food Cook-Off. Ah! Sorry about that. Um, I... Just wanted to say, I think it's a really good show, and I think you would uh, really appreciate it. Um, that's all. Bye. So that was Travel's recommendation for the great soul food cook-off on Discovery+. Plus. There are three episodes of it out right now that I've already watched. They have more episodes coming out. Travel was raving about this show. Um, a friend of ours who's a publicist uh, has worked on the show and has been talking about it on Instagram, uh, Joe Williams, who's uh, fantastic. And I'm just, I'm in love with this show. Uh, it's hosted by Cartier Brown, who is this fantastic cook that you might know from the Food Network. The show is just so full of like heart and blackness and history and all of these fantastic things that I love. So you've said absolutely nothing about what the show actually is. So I guess I'll it's do that It's called The job. Great Soul Food Cook-Off. What do you not know? It like is a competition-style show 
similar Cook to like off. a master chef similar to like a hell's kitchen esque type show indicated by cook all about it's not indicated by cook off because if your reference went to for example eddie's million dollar cook off okay the classic disney channel Who is movie that? it's a classic disney channel Who is movie Edward? see not <laughs> Y'all see what I got to deal with on this podcast every single week. <laughs> I just be trying to bring y'all good information. And then Jared just always being Jared. Anyway, it is a competition show that y'all should check out. It's like high on the hog, but competition style. So like so much of the history of soul food is baked into this competition show. Um, there are eight, I, I believe. See what you, did, uh, you thought you were clever with that pun. What What pun? baked in i didn't even realize i said that um but yes it's a great show and y'all should check it out okay the other show that i'm in love with right now and i actually somehow binged the entire series on saturday uh is harlem it's over on prime video it stars uh megan good tyler lepley a a host of fantastic folks that i'm really excited to see on the show it's called harlem again on prime video it is kind of a some folks are referencing it as a as a touch of like insecure meets sex in the city it's beautifully done i'm enjoying all of the characters it's super funny and relatable uh so make sure to check out harlem like i said i watched the whole show on saturday um all of all 10 episodes are out right now so go check it out harlem is is great um and it is exactly a black sex in the city and i hate to reduce it in that way but that's that's the format right um or um what's the other one living single you can you know date it back to living single if you want the black reference but it's it's about four black women who are friends living and loving and surviving in new york city it is really good another show that y'all should check out um oh i guess all of our honorable mentions this week are tv shows another one you should check out on this one is on hbo max is called the sex lives of college girls i believe i believe that's the name of it it's produced Mm -hmm. by mindy kaling and it is exactly what the title sounds like it's a show about the lives of these four freshmen young women um who are in college for the first time and they're dipping it and doing it and living and loving and and not loving it's so great it's hilarious it's great check it out hbo max all right it's time for black history is happening every day i always forget how long that goes uh when i go back and listen to the show i'm always like you are singing that note for a long ass time it's called breath control thank you very much sure we'll go with that um, I want to shout out uh, Robert Gray, who is also my cousin Bobby, um, who sent me this story that he was featured in a long time ago, actually, in the Bay Area um, back in 2014. Um, I, this past week, I disclosed my HIV status um, as being positive, And like, I got a lot of outreach from various different folks. And one of them was my cousin who sent me this poster that he was a part of that was like one of the first safe sex posters um, that really went around the world. It says you can have fun and be safe too. Uh, I'll include the link to the article, but um, he was like, oh, you know, I was a part of HIV history that went around the world and posters that were all over the place. Um, It deals with interracial dating because he's a black man and the man that's with him is a white man. Um, He's 
nude and you see his ass cheeks out. Uh, but Robert uh, Bobby uh, is a part of uh, black history in this way. And I'm, I'm really, really proud of that. Um, and the story is um, a really fantastic account of what happened um, as a result of this poster going out into the world. So um, again, you can go check out that story. Uh, it is in our uh, description. It's from the Bay Area Reporter. So go check that out. Alrighty, so before we get out of here, I want to remind you all that I am one of the co-hosts of the What A Day podcast. So if you're looking for, you know, a, a daily news podcast, you get all the news you need within about 20 minutes every single morning. Check out What A Day, um, available where you're listening to this episode right now. My standing days are Thursday mornings, so if you want a little bit of extra oomph, to your Thursdays, which are already packed with Fanti, go ahead over to What A Day. And if this conversation piqued your interest and you want more of this, good, good. There you go. Check out other episodes that have a related conversation. I already mentioned it earlier in the episode, but our episode, I think it's titled Funky Covadina with Bianca Mabate Louie. Dr. Darian Sutton and Nurse Alice Benjamin. You should check that out. That was an episode back in March. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we ask that you leave us a five-star rating and a review. Let us know what you think about the show. If you have a comment or suggestion about this week's episode, we're at Fanti Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Use the hashtag FantiFam or send us an email at Fanti at MaximumFun.org. Uh, you can join uh, the Fanti fam and be a financially contributing member here at Maximum Fun. Go to MaximumFun.org slash join. Our music is brought to you every single week by the one and only Corice. That's C-O-R dot E-C-E, wherever you get slay-worthy audio. And our graphics are done by the wonderful folks over at Moonhouse Creative, led by Ashley Wen. Our producers are Laura Swisher! <laughs> And Lorraine Wee! <laughs> Breath control, baby. This is a production of Maximum Fun. I can't. <laughs> MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported. All right, let's go ahead and start recording. Oh, now We're gonna he want to go. He want to just get back and just to jump right back into it. Y'all you see how he do us? Rat bastard! Mm-hmm. I swear for so aggressive in front of All company. Right. Um,